We continue worship with the reading of our second lesson. It comes from the 15th chapter of the book of Genesis, uh, verses 1 through 21. Let us continue to listen for the word of God. If you're at home listening, I hope you have your Bibles with you, and I would invite you to open and read and follow, and I'll refer back to this uh, for a verse or two later. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you can count them, then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said to the Lord, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He brought these to him and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. A deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs, and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This 15th chapter of... The book of Genesis is a strange one indeed. But here God reaffirms the covenant promises he had made to Abraham previously, telling them that uh, he would bear a son, he and his wife, and this son would be the heir of the covenant of promises. We're going to try to get beyond this, the puzzling covenant ceremony, the sealing of the covenant, which is what this strange, bizarre uh, passage shares with us, this menagerie of animals, the gruesome cutting them in two and placing them on an 
altar. Suffice it to say that in this ancient uh, ceremony that's rather incomprehensible to the modern mind, it's just indicating the seriousness with which people took a covenant promise or obligation. It is as if to say, may this be done to me if I am not if I don't honor my word, if I'm not faithful to what I have said that I will do. But this morning, I want us to look beyond the mysterious and the gruesome aspects of this story and focus on the crisis of faith here, which is what Abram and Sarah are going through, and which in truth, all of us will go through eventually if we're people of faith. If we can just look beyond the gore we may discover one of the more helpful and one of the more instructive lessons in the whole story of the patriarchs of all. Walter Brueggemann, former uh, Old Testament professor at Columbia Theological Seminary, says that this chapter, the 15th chapter, is pivotal for understanding the whole Abrahamic tradition, the story of the patriarchs. It exposes the trial of faith, the nature of faith, and it was this story and a passage from it that inspired the later writers of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, the writer of whoever wrote the book of Hebrews that Lisa read to us this morning, as they tried to articulate and explain the substance of faith. How so? Well, if we go back a number of years in the life of Abraham and only three chapters in Scripture to the 12th chapter, of Genesis. That's when Abraham is first called, or Abram as he's called, he's let, his name is later changed to Abraham. He's called of God to leave Ur of the Chaldees where he is li living, to go to a land he had never heard of. In fact, he had never probably heard of Yahweh, this God who is speaking to him. But the promise made to Abram when he's in Haran up in the Chaldees is that you will have a son and you will have many, many descendants, as many as the dust upon the face of the earth. And not only that, but I'm going to give to your descendants a land to call their own and, and they will possess it and live within it. So that promise has been made. In chapters 12 and 13, uh, we see what happens or really what doesn't happen. Abram picks up lock, stock, and barrel, leaves his family, was living a secure life. It's believed that he was quite wealthy back in uh, that place at that time, had many animals, many flocks. But he turns his back on his people, on his nation, and he obeys this word from God that came to him to go. He would eventually have a child, many descendants. He will be the, the patriarch of a great nation where his descendants will live. And how does Abraham respond? He believes what God is saying to him. And he not only believes what God is saying, but he obeys. He does this incredible thing that God asked him to do. And so he and Sarah head out. They walk and they wait, they wait and they walk. And the years continue to slip by year after year. But the child of promise never makes an appearance, no signs of a pregnancy. And this land that they had been promised, well, it now seems a distant hope. Where is this land? Where are their descendants? We read in Second Peter 
But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises as some think of slowness. Well, that may be true if you're a God. Finite time may not matter much to an infinite God. Maybe for God, a thousand years is as a single day. But for us mortals like you and me, like Abraham and Sarah, that promise seems slow indeed in being carried out and fulfilled, painfully slow, if you will. After all, Abraham and Sarah were getting old. They still didn't have a child. Abraham is nearly 100, Sarah over 90. Sarah's probably thinking, am I going to bear a child with all this arthritis? And Abraham is thinking, well, you can't chase a toddler around if you're on a walker yourself. Well, I'm just kind of joking here, but I think some of those thoughts must have been going through their minds. And they are being confronted with the ultimate test of faith that comes to every person who is a child of God. And that test is this, do we believe God? Can God be trusted to follow through on his promises? Is the word of God reliable? Are our hopes in vain? Is there anything in it for me, we might say, any reward? God uses that word in verse 1. He says, yes, there will be a reward for you. We wonder, Abraham and Sarah must have wondered, if I take this risk of faith, if I head out on this journey, which surely my peers and family think is a fool's errand at best, if I choose to believe what God is saying to me, what will happen? That's what's going on in Genesis 15. That's what's in the mind of Abram and Sarah. It's often in our minds as well, whether we admit it or not. When we don't have proof in hand, when the promises of God are not readily self-evident, when our hopes and dreams are slow in being realized, we wonder, can God really be trusted? Will God be faithful to what he has promised? Dare I believe God? Without a doubt, uh, Abram and Sarah are struggling with this issue. And then in chapter 15, the word comes afresh in a vision to Abram. First saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, that is your protector, and your reward shall be very great. But don't overlook the fact that that's all Abram receives at this point. Just another word from God another promise restated but no kind of tangible evidence that the child is coming or that this great land is waiting for them so Abraham is saying how can I know is there no sign I have no child but a slave and so the Lord takes Abram outside and asks him to look up at the heavens and ask him to see if he can count the stars telling him that your descendants will be greater than the stars in the heavens. But that's all he's given. Just another word of promise and a glance at the heavens. Once again, how does Abram respond? Now look with me at verse 6. It's one of the most significant verses in the whole of Scripture. It reveals what is at the core of the Judeo-Christian tradition. 
It, is ex it exposes what is at the heart of our relationship with our Redeemer and our God. It illustrates the character, the quality, and the challenge for anyone who has a biblical faith. Verse 6 states, And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Centuries later, when the writers of the New Testament were trying to think, how do I explain to people the nature of this faith we profess? They thought of Abram, what it means to walk by faith, not by sight. Not because we can prove the word of God to be true, but because we dare to believe it is true. God counts this believing in him, believing what he's, not believing in him, but believing him as the core, the test, the trial of our faith. And God considers this our righteousness, that we dare to believe what he says to us. Now, what I'm about to say may shock and surprise some of you, but I think it is a true. So many people in the church and outside the church operate on a faulty premise with respect to the Bible, a distortion of what the Bible is actually teaching. It can be stated, I guess, in a lot of different ways, but let me say it this way. God is not nearly so concerned as we are that people believe in him but God is very concerned if his people believe him. There is a difference. Believing in God can be simply an article of our faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. We can believe in God and at the same time not believe God what God is saying to us. The purpose of the church is not to convince anyone that God is real. The purpose of the church is not to convince people that God is real. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible assumes God from Genesis 1 through the book of Revelation. In the beginning, God. God doesn't try to justify or prove himself to people. Every time Jesus is challenged by a skeptic or an antagonist to prove his divinity, to prove his messiahship, he consistently refuses to do so. Now, we can speculate as to why that is so. We may even regret that it's so. Why didn't he prove himself? But we can't change what the Bible is saying. The biblical record is clear that while believing in God is not unimportant, it's not nearly as important as believing God. There's a sense, you see, in which nearly all religions believe in God, a God, may call that God different names. Even a lot of non-religious people are open to the possibility that there is a God above and beyond this universe. That's a possibility, if not a probability. And so in a sense, they may believe in a God but so what? Are they trusting what that God is saying through his word, through his promises? The book of James reminds us that even the demons believe and they shudder. But while God's existence may not be of paramount importance in the biblical narrative, there is a matter that is of central and critical significance. What ultimately matters 
is whether or not we will choose to believe what God is saying to us through his word. Do we trust his word? Do we live our lives on the basis of his word? Do we stand on his promises, obey his instructions, even though we cannot prove in advance their value, their logic, their truth, even their reliability, even though the world thinks us weird or strange or maybe even insane. So what I'm really asking each of us this morning is this. Are you willing to believe God? Do you believe God when he says that he loves you and will never forsake you, despite the fact of what you may be going through right now, that you may be feeling God forsaken? You may be feeling very unloved, and yet God says, I love you. I'll never leave you. Do you believe God when he says we will have more freedom, really, as a slave of his, a servant of his, than if we try to be the master of our own fate? Do you believe God when he says that it really is better to give than to receive? The world's going to think you an idiot to believe that. Do you believe Jesus, really? Do your, does your life show it? when he says that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who wrong us? Do we believe God when he says we are to treat others as we wish to be treated? That we will be better, our world will be better if we dare to show compassion, to work for peace, and to practice justice. Do you really believe Jesus when he says you cannot serve wealth and God, you have to make a decision. Is the stock market more important to you or the word of God? What do you really believe? And who do you believe? Do you really believe God when he says that stealing or lying or murder or infidelity or gluttony or drunkenness will not only separate you from God, but it will damage you and destroy your relationship with your neighbor. That the greatest goals of life are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you really believe that? Not believe in a God who said that, but do you believe that? Oh, of course, it's appropriate to believe in God. I'm not against that. I don't think God's against that. It's every week in worship, we say a creed. We're a confessional church. We say what we believe, what we believe in as articles of faith. But you can give intellectual assent to some proposition without it changing how you live your life, without it changing what you really believe, evidenced by the life that you're living. So Abram believed, as difficult as that may have been. He trusted that God would eventually honor this promise made, despite the fact that the years continue to roll by. He did live to see the child born, Isaac, and the start of his descendants, but he never made it to the land. He never saw or lived in this great land that would become a nation long, long after his death, but he believed and he obeyed nonetheless. His peers, his family back in Ur of the Chaldees, 
surely must have questioned his mental health, his wisdom, to obey a God he'd never heard of before, to head off for a land he'd never seen before, to believe that he would be the father of a great people even though he had no children and the prospects were dim for having a child. Maybe no one else mattered or noticed, but God noticed. God noticed, and he decided to count this as righteousness. The fact that Abram was willing to believe what God was saying. Friends, if we take the risk of faith, if we dare to believe what God is saying, if we dare to obey his word, to trust his promises, then he will be our security for today and our hope for all of our tomorrows. And yes, the world will think us a weird people, always has, always will. But that is what it will mean to walk by faith and not by sight. And that is why Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. I wonder if anyone remembers the name of Scott Willis. In my file on this uh, passage of Scripture, I had filed away this article from a paper 10 years ago. Uh, the USA Today had an article about this Baptist minister from Chicago named Scott Willis. He and his wife lost all six of their children in an automobile accident. The, fire, the, the car exploded and all six of their children were killed. And this Reverend Willis was interviewed after, among other things, by a psychiatrist because he had said that this did not damage his trust in God, his belief that God loved him, loved his children, and that the only way he made it through this tragedy was through the comfort and the companionship of God. The psychiatrist trying to assess this think, was saying uh, he's in denial. No one could really believe this. No one could go through this and still believe that there's a God who loves us and wants what is best for us. And I wondered when I was reading the article, what would the psychiatrist have preferred? That he curse God and die? That he just reject the whole nation of a living God who wants what is best for his children? Kind of like Job's friends told him, why don't you just curse God and die since you're going through all of this? Job refused and so did Scott Willis refused. And he was spoken of in a rather condescending way that someone could go through this and still believe in a God. I wonder how many of you understood or remember when the Charleston Nine were murdered in 2015. This young racist Dylan Roof was invited by the members of the Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston to come in and be a part of their Bible study. And in the middle of that, the unthinkable happened where he drew his weapon. He murdered nine people and then fled. And people couldn't believe it. When the family survivors and some of the survivors from that accident first confronted Dylan Ruth, they said that they forgave him. They forgave him. 
for that despicable and evil act. When that happened, I had just retired the month before, and our church was several blocks, two or three blocks down the street from Mother Emanuel. So I got calls from people all over the country, and even a minister friend in Ghana. They were just mesmerized by this. And they asked me, how in the world could they forgive this young racist who had slain their loved ones? And I didn't know what to say except to say, well, apparently they not only believe in Jesus in that church, but they believe Jesus. They believe Jesus when he said, you're to forgive your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I wonder how many of us are doing that. How many of us are praying for our enemies? How many of us are even praying for those we can't stand or dislike in the political realm, any other realm, in our neighborhood? Do we believe Jesus when he said that? Friends, the Christian faith will always be a scandal to those who are on the outside looking in because they're not going to understand what we're about. Sometimes we don't understand what we're about. It just doesn't make good sense since we don't have any proof positive that the things God is saying to us are true and real and will be honored, and yet we choose to believe. Now, here's the thing. Abram chose to believe... And because he chose to believe, God chose to count that as righteousness. And that is our hope. So believing in God may be important, but believing God is our ultimate calling. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.